challenge tonight, but uh, we've made it. So we're going to take some time, ask God's blessing, and we're going to move forward and see what he has to say to us. So let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, time, place, opportunity to gather in the name of Jesus. We recognize and uh, we honor your presence here. We give you thanks for that. We ask that you would teach us tonight. We pray for your Holy Spirit to anoint your word in such a way that we'd be able to receive what you have for us as individuals. I pray that you speak to us at our various points of need in our lives, places that we need to hear from you in, things that we need to hear, direction that we need to receive, God, perhaps uh, just showing us more about who you are, I just pray, Father, that we would be ready and open to receive what you want to say and what you want to do in our lives. We ask, God, that you be glorified tonight. We pray that you be honored tonight. And we ask, God, that you'd have your way. Your will be done in us and through us in this time, in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to... The book of Zechariah. Book of Zechariah. And we received a speak pipe this week. And uh, it was audio by Anonymous that sent us a speak pipe. But I bet you know who it is when you hear it. So, uh, just happy to hear from people. And we do encourage our listeners to uh, go to that website at www.speakpipe.com dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word, and you'll find a button, you can toggle it, and you can leave us what appears to be a voicemail, and we'd love to hear from you, and so tonight we have a message, and I will play it now. Or maybe not. Hi, this is Sarah. Uh, just saying hi. God's really answering prayers here. I'm really enjoying my job teaching. And I just moved into a really nice new place. So thank you all for praying. Bye. Okay, that was a message from Sarah. And she's just thanking us for praying for her. She moved into a nice new place. And is really enjoying her job teaching. And so she got a hold of us to uh, let us know what's up. And so, Sarah, thank you for sending that along. And, uh, again, we just enjoy hearing from people that listen. It could be something as simple as uh, hello, hi, a quick update, uh, something good that God's doing in your life, whatever. 
but uh, think about it. Give us a give us a message someday. We'd love to hear from you. Zechariah chapter twelve. Zechariah chapter twelve. And I need a volunteer to read verse ten. Zechariah twelve ten. All right, thanks for reading that. Now, Zechariah is a prophet, and he's prophesying during a period in Israel's history, people of God's history, where they've been taken captive and returning from that captivity, and uh, things were being set in order in Jerusalem. Uh, They were being set in order in all of Israel and in Judah. And so this is all part of the message that He's bringing to the people, but clearly he's prophesying toward the future. He's prophesying toward a later time that's going to come around about 400 years or so after the time he's actually in. And so this prophecy is clearly and is also confirmed in the New Testament to be a prophecy about what we understand to be the crucifixion. And what the main meaning that I really believe that he's trying to bring to the people is that this is a word of restoration. Now, as evangelical Christians, we think about the crucifixion in very specific ways. So as a a typical evangelical, we look at the crucifixion of Jesus as being that time, that moment where his blood was shed, the sacrifice was given, and our sins are forgiven. Now, as spirit-filled evangelical Christians, we also add to that the idea that it was by his stripes, through all that he suffered, all that he went through, that we also are able to receive physical healing, a body, soul, and spirit kind of healing in our lives. And so that's a verse out of Isaiah, a verse out of Peter, And so we take that and we apply it to how we begin to see healing in our lives too. So as spirit-filled evangelicals, that's pretty much how we see the crucifixion. Uh, Evangelicals, if you ever notice, if you go to a non-evangelical church, let's let's go to a Roman Catholic church, you see uh, what would be known as a crucifix. And what that is, it's a cross and Jesus is being crucified on the cross. Now, that's a common symbol that you would see in a Roman Catholic church. And so there's there's a reason for that, that the Mass centers around the crucifixion. And so that particular symbol is important because that's what their Mass or what their service centers around. As evangelicals, you know, if you go to an evangelical church, you see a cross, but it's empty. And the reason for that is that evangelicals tend to celebrate the resurrection, because that's what that symbolizes. They celebrate the resurrection more than they celebrate the crucifixion. 
And so their services center around the idea of Jesus has risen. He's not here. Kind of what we celebrate on Easter. And we have a Good Friday service where we take some time to reflect on the crucifixion. But then we have the Easter morning service that we, we really focus on and celebrate the resurrection. And it is an evangelical tradition that we celebrate the resurrection throughout the year. And so that's why you would see that symbol in evangelical churches and why it differs from that, you see, say, in a Roman Catholic church. So, I believe that this passage gives us, and, and, I, and I'm not saying that we're right and they're wrong or anybody's right or wrong, but I do believe that as spirit-filled evangelicals, we need a broader understanding of what the crucifixion is about. I really believe that. I believe that there's more meaning. I believe that there's a greater depth, uh, a fuller meaning to what the crucifixion is about. And I think sometimes we, we, we find the crucifixion to be uh, just a bit unsavory. You guys ever see that movie, that Mel Gibson movie? Yeah. Yeah, how, you're disturbed by that. Yeah, okay. I'm just telling you, you were. I, I don't know if you were, but I'm just saying you were. Because most of the people that saw that, and I saw that in a movie theater, a bunch of us went to see it together, and there are some disturbing scenes in that. Well, yeah, there are some disturbing scenes in that because the way that that brutal death that the Romans used through crucifixion, it was disturbing. And in our modern society, we don't really have a stomach for that at all. Uh, you know, they, these are people that went to the Colosseum to see people ripped apart by animals. That was entertainment. And there were people burned alive was entertainment. So people being crucified, people would go there and they'd gawk at it. I mean, it, and, and I, I don't know if we call it entertainment, but it certainly was something that they didn't really have a lot of qualms about that we do. And so to see something portrayed like that, I thought it was a great idea that Crazy Mel Gibson had to go ahead and put that movie together and do it. Because he's kind of nutty. I don't know if you know that. No offense if Mel, if you're listening, but he's a little bit nutty. And he does things that are kind of a little bit nutty and stuff sometimes. And, and, and so I think he hired a new publicity team that just keeps him out of the media. Because he says and does things that are kind of weird. And so, and so, but that was a, that was a great idea. And, and to, to bring that to the church gave us a fuller understanding of wow, what did this really look like? What was this like for, that Jesus went through? To give us a greater appreciation as to his sacrifice, a greater appreciation as to the situation that he put himself into, knowing that that was what was going to happen to him. He did it anyway because of the bigger picture of things. And it helps us to see that. It helps us to understand that. And so, so what all does it mean? And I think there's a bigger picture involved in it. It's not just the gruesomeness of the actual act itself, but there's other spiritual understanding that I think we can glean from that. That, that okay, so we've got the sacrifice, we've got the, the shedding of blood, we've got forgiveness of sins. All right, let's, you know, we got that one. 
And as spirit-filled believers, we've got, okay, by His stripes, in other words, through the beatings and, and through all that He endured through that whole process of the crucifixion, by His stripes, the Bible says we were healed. We're healed. And so there is a, there, there's a healing involved in that. There's physical healing that was provided for us through that. But there's more. Because like I said, and I alluded to earlier, Zechariah, although this is clearly, clearly a prophecy about the crucifixion of Jesus. It just is. And, and it's confirmed in the New Testament, this is a prophecy about the crucifixion of Jesus. That even though that's what it's about, that's what it is. It is a word of restoration. And restoration would appear to be a key understanding of what the crucifixion has to do with our everyday lives. That the crucifixion in and of itself is a restoring work for us. For us as individuals, for us as a body of believers, for us as a group of people that the crucifixion has more depth of meaning than what we've seen before. Now, a restoration meaning what? Well, go back to what's happening here. Go back to who Zechariah is prophesying to. He's prophesying to a people who had failed. He's prophesying to a people who had left behind the first love that they had had for their God. They're talking to a, a people that had gone after idols and they had gone after other things. And so because they had gone after these idols and they had gone after these other things, they suffered the consequences of, of all that they had done. And so them and their families and all the people that they loved and cared for, they were all taken into captivity. And they lost everything. They lost everything that they had, had before they left. They lost their land or they lost their possessions. They lost their money. They lost their position. They lost their power. They lost all of these things. And as Zechariah was prophesying to him, here they were coming back. And they were still struggling with some of the same issues that they had had. Generation after generation struggled with the same issues over and over and over again. Issues that led them into these, these hills and valleys of relationship with, with God. Good high places, awesome places, I'm, I'm close to God, low places, I'm, I'm worshiping idols. I turn my back on God, I don't have anything to do with it. Right, and so they were moving through these hills and valleys all throughout their history. And then they ended up in Babylon. Why? Because, they, well, a deep valley, a dark place. And so here they were, miraculously returning to Jerusalem, miraculously returning to Judah, miraculously returning to Israel. And the prophets are giving direction. The prophets are giving, telling them that this is where you're going, this is what you need to be doing. They're setting them straight. They're keeping them on the road they need to be on. And here you have this word. And, and this word has to do with their restoration as a nation, as a people, as individuals. That's what this word has to do with. I have to imagine coming back to the situation they came back to. I mean, you know how it goes if you go away from somewhere for a while and nobody takes care of it? You ever seen people's houses, like, when they get, you know, like, people get old, right? 
and they, they and they reach a point where they can no longer take care of the house. I got a guy that lives on the corner of my street. I, we used to plow his um, driveway for him when I ran our, our plowing business, and and he was uh, he was something else. That guy, yeah, and and so. He, you know, and he was, he was very vibrant. He was somebody that, and he was old at that time. We were doing that, and, and he was somebody a strong individual, strong personality, all these things. But as what happens to people, I mean, he reached a certain age, and he can no longer take care of his house. His wife was also reaching that age too. And you know, I don't know if he's alive. I don't know if he's dead. But I'll tell you, over the years of, of running by his house or riding my bike by his house or driving by his house. I pass it every time I go home. That house, which was in immaculate shape, has deteriorated. The bushes are overgrown. The trees are overgrown. Nobody's trimmed them. The grass is overgrown. The driveway is falling apart. You understand what I'm saying? Needs a new roof. You can't take care of it. And so you leave something over a period of time, it just kind of falls apart. So imagine these people, they left Jerusalem, you know, 70 years before this. 70 years. What kind of shape do you think Jerusalem was in? Because before they left, I mean, the Babylonians, they burned it to the ground. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed the walls, they burned everything to the ground. And there it was. I mean, you got to imagine like the weeds and the grass and everything that's grown up there. And the Bible describes it as animals walking through the street. Of course they did. They reclaimed it. Seventy years is a lot of generations of animals. And they went back there and they just took it over. And so there was a whole reclamation that had to take place. It was utter devastation, but more than utter devastation, it was like, well, if they had returned the next year after it was burned to the ground and everything was knocked down, well, that would be a certain kind of reclamation. But I want you to think about the devastation that took place, not just from the destruction of the Babylonians, but the devastation that took place there just over time, 70 years. So this is a word of restoration. And I don't know if you can hear in that word, if I say restoration over a city and over a people that has deteriorated over 70 years, I hope you can hear the word hope in that. Because I don't know, I look at something like that and think, wow, how will we ever be able to build this place again? How will we ever be able to rebuild our lives again? How will we ever be able to reestablish our homes and reestablish our families in this place? How will we ever be able to make a living here? How will we ever be able to build that temple again? How will we ever be able to build these walls so that we're safe again? How in the world is this ever going to happen? How? Well, they get this word. And in that word, built in, is hope. Hope for something better. Hope that their lives and, and, and who they were would be reclaimed. Again, hope. What this speaks to us, and, and I hope you can understand this, is that you know there's times in our lives where we make the wrong decisions. I don't care who you are. We just do. We, we make a selfish decision make a decision that 
benefits me but not the other person. We might make a decision that hurts somebody else. We make decisions that cost us or cost our family. We make decisions that, that put us into a bad situation, that hurt us financially, that, that may hurt us with our job, our employment. We make decisions. And there are consequences to those decisions. But part of the word that we have through Zechariah is that we have a Savior. And that Savior died. He was crucified. And it's through that crucifixion, through that that understanding what that means, that there's a word of restoration that comes our way, a word of hope. Because no matter what it is we messed up, no matter what it is that we made the bad decision about, no matter what it is we wasted away, no matter what it is that we threw away, no matter what it is that we ruined, no matter what it is or whoever or whatever got hurt in that, we serve a God who has given everything And there is nothing that we have done that's bigger than what he's given in its place. Nothing. And so there's always hope. And he's always working to restore that which has been lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's just part and parcel with the gospel. It's part and parcel with the ministry of Jesus, and it is what Jesus has done and what Jesus provides over our life. He's a God of restoration. He's a God of hope. The first part of this word of hope, this first part of restoration in our life, the number one thing is that it requires individual change on our part. What do I mean by that? That's the first thing, that we leave behind the past. You have to be willing to leave behind the past if you want to experience the kind of resurrection that the life and the crucifixion of Jesus brings. You've got to be willing to leave it behind. If you're not willing to leave it behind, in other words, you're going to carry the past with you, you're going to carry your mistakes with you, you're going to carry your bad decisions with you, you're going to carry the judgment of others with you, you're going to carry whatever it is that lies in the past, you're going to carry that with you then you are negating the work of Jesus that he's given and done for you that you might be restored and set free. And I can't put it in more strongly than that because I believe it is that strong of a statement that the past has to stay in the past. You can't change it. You can't change the past. You can change the present, and by changing the present, you can change the future, but you can't change the past. And so you're best off on every level leaving what's in the past in the past and just let it be. Well, Andy, you don't understand what I did. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I do understand. Maybe I don't care. Because I know what Jesus has done is bigger than whatever you've done in the past. Maybe I just don't care. I mean, if you want to tell me, I'll listen. But I don't need to know. Not really. And the older I get, the more I realize I don't need to know. I just don't. The older I get, the more I understand that I just don't need to know. The only reason I need to know anything out of your past is if there's something that the state has put on you that affects us as a church. 
And I need to know. And that's not God's doing. That's the state's doing. I can't help that. It just is what it is. <coughs> and I think you kind of understand what I'm talking about with that, without getting too far into detail. Because we have people come here, and it used to be more than it is now, but we've had people over the years come here out of prison. They come here out of jail. They come here out of all kinds of bad past experiences. And I'll tell you a little secret about us. We take anybody. Yeah, we just take anybody. And, and the reason that we take anybody is because no one is beyond the redemption of what Jesus has done. Nobody. And we know that. We understand that. The only thing that, that irritates me, the only thing that irritates people that are in charge here, is if you lie to us. There ain't no reason to lie about it. We're not going to kick you out. We want you here. We want you to be a part of what we're doing. And I've told people that in the past, like, you got something to tell me, you better tell me. Because if you lie to me, that's it. All right? You can go find somebody else to lie to. But that ain't me. And that ain't our kids. And that ain't what we're doing. So over the years, we've seen a lot of good redemption from really awful things. Over the years, we've seen uh, people that have been restored from shattered lives. And it's an amazing, powerful thing to watch what God does. And I'm just thankful to be a little part of that. But if people are going to feel safe to tell us the truth, that falls on each one of us to create a situation and an atmosphere where people can be truthful. You see, most of the time in the church, people don't want to be truthful because they know they're going to get judged. And so they just make stuff up. They tell lies. But see, there's, there's no restoration then. There's no real change. There's no redemption in that. There's not. And so we can't create an atmosphere as God's people where the truth can't come out where people can't just talk about what's going on. They can't talk about where they came from if they want to. They can't talk about the, the things that they did if they want to. And maybe they just find somebody and they talk to them about it. That's good. But a lot of times people just want to unburden themselves. And maybe I don't need to know, but they need to tell me. You understand what I'm saying? And so we have to create an atmosphere as God's people where it's okay. It's okay you were an awful person. It's okay you were mean to people. It's okay you hurt people. I mean, not okay for them. I'm just saying, I, you can tell me. All right? And then we can see about getting moving on and, and some restoration and some reclam reclamation of life there. Jesus talks about this. He's like, don't be judgy. Now, he didn't say judgy, but you understand what I'm saying. We can't be judgy. just can't. Because whatever measure we judge in, we're going to be judged back. I don't want that. I do not want that. I do not want to get judged like that. And so, I'm going to do best I can not to get judgy on people. And to just let them come and let them grow and let them change as the Holy Spirit brings about change in their life. 
I got to have enough confidence in God that that's what's happening. And give him opportunity and give him the time and the space to do that in each person's life that walks through those doors. I'm not where God wants me to be yet. Neither are they. Neither are you. And so let's just participate in this journey together without judging each other but allowing for the Holy Spirit to do His work. So we need to leave behind past mistakes. Just leave behind the past. You know, if you think about this, in His first incarnation when Jesus came, He bruised the serpent's head. And by that I mean He broke the power of darkness and He raised a kingdom among us. That's what He did. Now we know in His second coming, He's going to completely and utterly defeat the devil. But He bruised His head on the first one. And we experience what that means, that He bruised His head. Because the devil hasn't been cast into the pit. And He's still active, and He's still effective, and He still does what He does. But He bruised His head. And he broke the power of darkness. And that's important to understand. Because what that tells us is that the power of darkness is never absolute. In any way, shape, or form, and in any place. The power of darkness has been broken by Jesus through him bruising the head of the serpent. And so there might be a fight. There might be a struggle. There might seem like there's dark days. It might seem like there's hopeless situations, but it's never hopeless. It's never hopeless, and it's never completely dark. And the reason we know that is because that power has been broken, and Jesus is in the process, he started and is in the process of raising a kingdom among us. That's what he's doing. That's his reign and rule. That's what he's raising among us. He's making us a kingdom of priests kings. He's calling us to, to be a people, a cohesive people for His own purposes and for His own choosing. He's empowering us to live and to live out our lives in victory. Even though we face hard times, even though sometimes we face things that we there's no way we could handle that on our own, absolutely, but that's what He's raising up in us people of victory, regardless of our circumstances. You think about the disciples. Every one of the disciples were raised up in victory. All right? But all but one of them died or killed for their faith. Does that mean that they weren't victorious? No. Jesus declared death has been swallowed up in victory. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't proclaim defeat because they died. Those guys, before they died and through what they did on this earth and how they preached and how they ministered and the miracles they performed, changed the world that they lived in. I call that victory. I call that victory. No matter how they went out, that's still victory. And they were raised up to be victorious regardless of their circumstances. what Jesus did. That's what He's still doing. And so he's raising up, raising a kingdom among us. Now in this passage it talks about, kind of interesting to me, 
It talks about a spirit of grace has been poured out. And, and he is the author of all grace and mercy. That's who Jesus is. And so God has poured out, this has been poured out, this spirit of grace. So you don't need to beg it up. You don't have to beg up grace. Grace has been poured out. It's already poured out. And that spirit of grace that's been poured out is available to you right now, right here, always, 24-7. doesn't matter where you are. doesn't matter what's going on. That spirit of grace that has been poured out is available to you, and you do not, again, you do not need to beg that up. Somebody look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29. Hebrews 10.29 How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has himself the spirit of grace? All right. Now, I know that verse is kind of a downer. All right, I understand that. When I picked it, I knew it was kind of a downer. But I want you to think about what that verse says. Just think about that for a second. Does the person who rejects Jesus, is it because he hasn't been given grace? No. In fact, that spirit of grace mentioned by name in Hebrews 10.29, that spirit of grace has been poured out onto that person's life. In fact, in order for them to turn their back on Jesus, on the work that He's done, they've got to trample that grace, and they've got to cause a problem with that grace through their actions in order to even accomplish what they're trying to do. They've got to ignore it. They've got to speak evil about it. They've got to trample it underfoot. In fact, that whole section talks about the sacrifice of Jesus. And the sacrifice of Jesus remains and still remains, even after somebody decides, they say, well, I don't like this anymore, I'm going to go do something else. The sacrifice of Jesus is still the sacrifice of Jesus. Right? And there comes a point in people's lives when they make whatever decisions they're going to make. The thing I want you to understand, though, is it isn't because they ain't have enough grace. they got plenty of grace. And it ain't because... It, the the covenant the, the new covenant didn't reach out to them. New covenant reaches them fully. It's not because the blood of Jesus wasn't shed on their behalf. Because the blood of Jesus was shed on their behalf. Understand that everything we need that we need as people has been provided for us. Now we may not be able to see it. We may not be able to hear it. We may not be able to taste it or feel it, but it's there. Everything has been done. And for every person that you're praying for to come to know Jesus, everything has been done that's necessary for them to come to know Jesus. Everything. Everything. Veils being lifted. Eyes being opened. Darkness being flooded with light. Everything has been done. We're praying and interceding for people. And, and that's the next thing he talks about here 
we're praying and we're interceding for people that they will come to a realization in their own heart and their own mind. That's what we're really praying for. Because everything that's necessary is already done. Everything that's needed is already done. Everything that needs to take place for their lives is already done. And so he speaks here of a spirit of grace being poured out, but then he speaks of a spirit of prayer or supplication has been poured out also. And that's the second part of it. And what that spirit of prayer does, what that spirit of supplication does, it shows us our ignorance. Okay, how do you know you're ignorant? You need to be shown your ignorance. Because ignorance is that, that kind of blockade that's in us, that we choose to entertain in us, that keeps us from seeing the truth or keeps us from seeing what is actually there. And you can say, well, ignorance, you know, it could be just you were never taught. Perhaps. Perhaps, but the opportunity to learn is there. And people, sometimes they, they stay in ignorance through pride. They stay in ignorance through their own willful lack of effort. And, and so people that want to hear, that people that want to learn, people that want to come into a better place, my experience is they, they find that. They just find that. And that spirit of prayer and that spirit of supplication that shows us our ignorance, that shows us our want, that shows us our guilt, our misery, our danger, that's something that's been poured out. It already has been poured out. And we can choose to ignore it, but it doesn't mean it's not there. We can choose to pretend that we don't fall into that category, but it doesn't mean it's still there. Because at the same time, the spirit of grace and the spirit of mercy is being poured out. The spirit of prayer and supplication is being poured out. And one goes with the other. In other words, can I honestly look at my life and say, I need some change in my life? Well, yeah, I can. And how am I going to see that happen? It's through that spirit of grace and mercy that's being poured out. That's how I can leave the past behind and embrace something new. Let's look at a few verses here. We're going to look at Joel 2.28. And we get this idea, it's like, I will Poor. And when you hear that word poor, and I'll have you read Joel in a second, but when you hear that word poor, I want you to think about that. That indicates and that shows us a plentiful measure, like pouring rain. You know, it's not a sprinkle. It's not a passing shower. When you say it's pouring rain, what does it look like outside? Plenty of water. It's pouring Rain. And so when the Bible describes something as pouring, and, or God says, I will pour out my, whatever he says after that, I want you to think of that not in some small measure. Not in some way, oh, I better get my cup out so I can catch a little of that. I might need it for later. No, there's plenty being poured out. You don't need to save any. You don't need to catch it in a cup. There's lots and lots and lots of whatever he's pouring out. That means it is in plentiful measure for whatever we ever need it for. All right. Joel 2.28. So I will pour out my spirit on whom? All people. 
So nobody's even left out. All right? So so all of those things, well, you know, and I hear people say stuff like this. We start talking to people about, oh, you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, I just don't know if it's for me. No, it's for all people. In fact, he's going to pour out his Spirit on all people. In other words, plentiful measure for everybody. It's not being rationed. He's not being rationed at all. And so those thoughts and those ideas that get into people's heads, wherever they come from, I have no idea where they come from, but wherever they come from, it is inaccurate to understand God that way, to understand His Holy Spirit that way. That is incorrect. Because the fact of the Scriptures is this, the word of prophecy is this, and then what was repeated on the day of Pentecost in the New Testament is this, is that the Holy Spirit is being poured out in plentiful measure. That's indicated by the Word on everybody. Everybody. You want the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's yours. You want, you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? You can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Period. There, there is no, there's, there, there's no choke point on that. You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit tonight? You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You want to be filled to overflowing tonight? You can be filled to overflowing tonight. There is no choke point on the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Joel said so. And so it was prophesied in, in, uh, in the book of Acts. Peter said so when he was quoting Joel. In those days I will pour out in plentiful measure my Holy Spirit on all flesh. Everybody. And so if we can eliminate people thinking, well, I don't know if that's for me. Well, it is for you. Do you want it? Well, see, now there you go. You want it? Maybe. Maybe not. You're, you're a free-thinking individual, and you can make your decisions, and good. That was given to you by God. That's that freedom that is given to you by God, and you make your decisions. But what I'm trying to say is, is don't push that on him. Don't push that on some choke point, some artificial choke point that the Holy Spirit's only given to some people. That's just not true. Well, I don't know if it's for me. Well, it is for you. You can know it is for you. It is for you. Maybe you don't want it. God bless you. I'm okay. Yeah, that's good. But I don't, but all of these false limitations on what God has, all these false limitations on who he has it for. All these false limitations on not being enough or, or being only for a certain few. They are false. And that is not the point that's the issue. The issue is never, is there enough of the Holy Spirit to go around? Plenty. It's never the issue. Is this for me? It's for you. Never the issue. The real issue comes in our individual choice. Do I want this? Then you make your decision. And someday if you decide I want this, then you're going to receive. Because that's how it goes. Because there's plenty, and it's for you. You don't have to wonder about that. I mean, think about Acts chapter 2. You think about the day of Pentecost, and all that took place on that day, and you had the 120 in the upper room, and they're all in one accord, and, and you know, the disciples were up there, 11 disciples, and the rest of them up there. And, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. I mean, it was like a rushing mighty wind came through that upper room. And they had tongues cloven as fire over their heads. And the Bible says they were all, all? 
Hey, do you hear that? Every one of them was filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues. That's what happened. It was prophesied by Joel. It's prophesied by uh, Zechariah. It's prophesied that this is that God is going to bring about this spirit of grace and this spirit of supplication being poured out on you and me. And so that Holy Spirit that's being poured out on us, it begins to show us who we are. And that's okay. And you know what? We're all ignorant in some ways. You know what? We're, we're all in want and we're all in misery and we're all in danger in some ways. And that's just human nature. That's the human condition. But isn't it nice to begin to see that for what it is? So that maybe we don't continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Because because maybe, and you guys could probably follow along with this, but what do I mean by that? Well, getting to know who you are helps you make better decisions. Because let's say that you're a person and you know, you know, and, and you don't realize it, but you've been living your whole life where you don't really think too highly of yourself. And you think kind of lowly of yourself, and maybe that came from your childhood, maybe it came from somewhere else who knows I don't know but if you don't recognize it for what it is you don't see it for what it is you know what you're going to end up in some bad relationships just telling you and that's not that's not me prophesying that's just kind of the way it goes because if you don't think much of yourself you're going to likely end up in some kind of a poor relationship with somebody that doesn't think very highly of you either and you will find agreement with that person and then that person will treat you a certain way that you don't want to be treated. You may think you deserve it, but you don't want to be treated that way, and eventually it leads to some other decisions being made. Now, why am I trying to say that? Am I making you feel bad? No. What I'm trying to tell you is this, that at a certain point in your life, as the Spirit of God comes on you, that spirit of supplication comes on you, you begin to see yourself for who you are. And you say, you know what? I don't really like myself. That's the truth. All right. Well, let's begin to build a new vision of yourself based on what God says. Let's begin to build a new vision of who you are based on what God's revealed in His Word and what God says instead of just what's in your brain. Because whatever was put in your brain by verbal abuse, physical abuse, whatever else happened, is in your brain and is leading you down a similar path every time until you actually see it for what it is. You come out of your ignorance, you come out of your darkness, you see it for what it is, and you begin to change so that you can leave behind that part of your past. Because that's step number one for restoration is that you change. You change. As an individual, I'm going to change. And so this process of change is a, is a process, process of revelation and restoration. So we look at Romans 5, 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 5.
Go ahead, you can do it. Romans 5, 5. All right, so what, read that again. All right, so everything I'm sharing with you tonight, you know, has the potential to cause you to be ashamed. Okay? It just does. And, and so that's why people stay away from teaching on it, because they don't want you to feel ashamed, because nobody wants to feel ashamed. And and then you don't come back, and then we miss you, and we want you to come back, but then you won't answer our text. So, that's what happens. But this verse in Romans 5 is that this, this idea, this, this thing being prophesied by Zechariah, and I want you to really consider this, this restoration that's being prophesied by Zechariah, this restoration, this hope, that's being prophesied by Zechariah, tied directly into the crucifixion of Jesus, it doesn't lead us to shame. That's not what it's for. But it leads us to change and growth and hope and love and forgiveness. That's what it leads us to. And everything else that would lead you to shame in your life over considering some of these things, is a perversion of the gospel. That is a perversion of the work of Jesus. That is a perversion of his work on the cross. It just is. And we need to leave that behind. I mean, Jesus was going to the cross. One of the things, one of the acts of his will that he had to do as he was being crucified was to despise the shame. And he willingly did that. It was an act of his will to do that. He despised the shame. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that. We need to remind ourselves that his work on the cross sets us free from that. His work on the cross sets us free to a place of restoration, a place of hope. Because that's what that work was all about. That's that spirit of grace and that spirit of supplication that's being poured out into our lives. That's why it's being poured out into our lives. Because that's the place of hope and change. The place of becoming more than we were. Because there has to be some mechanism of that. There has to be. And that mechanism is the cross. That mechanism is the crucifixion. That mechanism is the sacrifice of Jesus. That is the mechanism of change in our lives. You talk about the Holy Spirit. Well, He leads me to change. Yeah, through the cross. The Holy Spirit leads me to change and restoration. Yeah, through the cross. Because that is the mechanism by which we're going to change and we're going to be made whole. And we're going to leave the past behind and take up the new. The old has passed away, the new has come. That is the mechanism. And I think it's important for us to recognize that as the mechanism. That's why healing is part of it. Think about that. Think about you got the body, you've got whatever part needs to be, whatever it needs to be, healed, made whole, however you want to say it. Well, God takes that sickness 
and you can think of it any way you want, but at the cross of Jesus, that sickness, that, that sickened part, that sickened piece of you is made whole. It's made whole. And so apply that to your heart. Apply that to your spirit. Apply that to your soul. Apply that to your life. And begin to see that mechanism, that same mechanism making you whole. Bringing change in your life and a wholeness to your life. That's what it's for. And so we need to put ourselves into that place. Because it's in that place that quickens our faith in Jesus. It's in that place that qualifies for joy in our life. That's where it comes from. And a fruit of the Spirit of grace is that joy. A fruit of the Spirit of grace is that faith that is quickened in us toward Christ. And so all I can do tonight is encourage you to recognize the work of Jesus. And I know you've heard plenty of sermons about the crucifixion, but I want you to hear this teaching a little bit differently tonight. If you can if your evangelical brain can allow you to begin to hear something different tonight, I pray it does. And I pray as you begin to consider the work of Jesus on the cross, you begin to consider the work of Jesus and all that He sacrificed and all that He did, I want you to see a bigger picture of restoration in your own life. I want you to see a bigger picture of a spirit of grace that is being poured out without measure over you. A spirit of supplication is being poured out without measure over you, leading you to change, to become, to be more, starting tonight. To leave behind the past, leave it where it belongs, and begin to move forward in what God has for you. time to get unstuck. It's time to stop repeating the same dangerous and destructive behaviors. It's time to stop. And it's time to move on. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that tonight you would really speak into minds hearts, spirit, soul. I pray you speak into innermost being tonight. And I pray revelation of God, what it means that you died on a cross. And I pray something deeper. I pray something deeper in every single one of us. Something deeper about that would be quickened in us. God, I thank you that you have change for us. I thank you, God, that you have life for us. I thank you that you have freedom for us. I thank you have liberty for us. Thanks. I give you thanks that there's more that we just haven't experienced yet. But I pray for that more for each one of us. Jesus, we say thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you. 
Thank you for a spirit of grace being poured out. Thank you for a spirit of supplication being poured out. I pray we would despise the shame and see change in our lives starting here and now. God, I pray you bring healing. I pray you bring wholeness. I pray that you pour out forgiveness, cleansing, grace, restoration. Restoration. Pour out your hope. More hope, God. More hope. Give you thanks tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's agree by saying amen. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the comunidad. Yeah, see, there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.